This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Bertel. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, shortages in personal protective equipment, or PPE, for medical professionals has been an ongoing and very dire issue. Two key types of PPE in desperate need are face shields and surgical masks. To mitigate this shortage, educators, makers, and everyday people have been sewing, laser cutting, and 3D printing PPE and then donating them to medical professionals, neighbors, friends, and family members. In this new podcast series, we'll be talking to the amazing people volunteering their time, materials, and expertise to create and donate PPE. So, Courtney, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, you know, I know you from our previous life before all of this. Um, you know, when I was running a little makerspace, you taught sewing classes after school. And so we would chat quite a bit. And I actually got a lot of really great tips from you since I was a beginning sewer and certainly a big, beginning sewing teacher. And you always had great um, info and tips for me. But I was wondering if you could just tell everybody, you know, kind of what your background is, what you've been doing the last couple of years. Sure. Well, um, we met, as you just said, um, at a school in Chicago. I was teaching after school program. Um, my degree is in fashion design, but I studied theater costuming for a number of years. So my passion is in pattern making and just making clothing and functional items. Um, and then recently, recently in the last five years, I'd say I'd switched my focus to teaching. And I found that I really enjoy teaching kids and um, kind of second grade through junior high is kind of the sweet spot for teaching for me. Um, So I I run a bunch of after school programs, uh, youth programs, and I also teach some adult classes. Um, So yeah, so I love creating, but even more than that, I'm finding that uh, I enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm. And so going back to kind of like your, your training, so the, being a pattern maker, is that different than other people who study fashion design? I mean, is that kind of a, more of a specialty or more of a, um, a deep specialization compared to other parts of designing clothes or? Um, yes. So I went to school in Chicago and I'm going to do a broad generalization. There are two main places where you can study. There's the art Institute, which specializes in, being a thinker, coming up with concepts, designs, and then Columbia College Chicago, where I attended, and that was more focused on the construction and pattern making and kind of the mathematical part of, of fashion. Um, so I, I, I've always loved pattern drafting it, um, and math and measurements and rulers and puzzles and figuring out order of operation. So that's, that's definitely where, how my mind works. Um, I don't know that I'm necessarily as confident with like coming up with the next forecasting, the next fashion trend. Mm-hmm. So, but you've also done some like upholstering and reupholstering, <laughs> I, I recall, right? Cause that seems like a very technical, you have to kind of unwrap something in your mind and then build the pieces and then rewrap it physically in space. Um, I mean, yes. is that kind of leaning on your pattern maker kind of background? Yes, upholstery is very physical and it's very much dependent on 
order of operation. And if you mm-hmm. mix up the orders, you got to take it all apart and do it again. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's every chair is its own puzzle because every mm-hmm. chair is a different shape. It's a different size. Uh, it has different details. So yeah, I, upholstery was, it was fun. I did that for several years. That was a great gig to do from home when the kids were little. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads to, I mean, what you've been doing recently, which is um, donating your time and materials to create uh, face mask, uh, mask protection for, you know, PPE for this COVID-19 crisis. So I was was just wondering how you kind of, how you got involved with that, what you've been doing to that end and, um, and just how you got started making masks. Sure. So, well, before I was making masks, I was teaching and pretty much overnight, I just watched all of my teaching jobs just evaporate. Um, Schools closed, businesses closed. And so I kind of went into this panic mode of, well, what am I going to do? What's the next move? Um, So and this, you know, this is not necessarily unique to me, but I find that as I get older, I have a desire to impact my community in a positive way or think globally. And I was just thinking like, what, what can I do with my skill set that's going to have a positive effect on, on people and my community? And, you know, what can I do to help? And it just felt like a no brainer to use my sewing skills and my gigantic hoard of fabric Mm -hmm. to make masks and share those with people. And so how how did you, did you come up with your own pattern? Did you adapt other ones that you saw? I mean, uh, as a pattern maker and a person who's done so much kind of three-dimensional sewing, um, it seems like it would be easy for you to figure it out. But with the medical aspect of it, um, did you make your own or did you kind of get inspiration from others' designs? Um, A little bit of both. So I definitely, I mean, with all fashion and pattern making, you're always getting inspiration from other people's work. Uh, But I drafted my own pattern. And so part of pattern drafting is you have to figure out what is the function of your, the item that you're creating. And in the very beginning, we didn't really know what the function was. So we thought, so who's our customer? Our customer was going to be medical staff, nurses and doctors, because there was this, you know, uh, drastic shortage of PPE available for the hospitals. We thought, okay, so what can we sew for the hospitals? Um, and we're, <laughs> so our first design, we called it a duck bill mm-hmm. style. It was kind of conical. And the idea was that it would fit over the N95 mask pretty snug. And so that way doctors and nurses could put a fabric mask over their N95. And then at the end of the day, take it home and launder it and put it back on top of their N95. And then they would get more than one, one or two days use out of what would otherwise be a disposable medical grade PPE. Mm. So that, that was kind of driving the pattern of the first. And then in terms of fit, the first mask, we wanted it to be really tight because at the time we weren't, we weren't sure how the virus was being spread. There were stories in the news about how, it was just airborne and it was going through ventilation systems and air conditioning. And so we thought this fabric mask needs to fit really, really snug against the face and be as airtight as possible. And maybe you remember at the time there were some photos circulating of nurses in France that had 
bruises around their faces from wearing their masks so tightly. And mm-hmm. we thought, oh my gosh, this is the level of, of fit that we have to replicate with this fabric mask. So the first design was kind of goofy looking and it fit really, really tight to the face. And then as things progressed and I mean, every day it was like new news, new science. Um, so after, I don't know, not, not too long of making that mask, we realized hospitals really are not allowed to accept non-medical grade uh, PPE and that the PPE that we're making really should be for civilians. Mm-hmm. And um, we also learned that the virus wasn't being, it wasn't airborne, it was being spread from uh, sneezes and spit and droplets. So it didn't mm-hmm. really have to be so tight. Um, and the general public doesn't like having something smashed up against their face. It's, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable to have something really tight against your face. So we really had to um, kind of quickly redesign the mask and make it so that it was um, more comfortable. Because truth be told, even if something functions really well and it's really good for your health, if it's not comfortable, people are not going to choose to wear it. So mm. you kind of have to play into what the customer wants. Sometimes with fashion design, you have to play into what the customer wants even more than what the customer needs, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. So, so these, so you kind of shifted and pivoted from something that would be rejected by hospitals. So it would be nice to have, and they would totally appreciate the sentiment, but just as far as medical regulations, you guys really couldn't make something that was in 95, you know, quality or got that percentage of particulates blocked. So uh, did you start, were these things you started selling, were you donating and selling them or just donating them at that point? Um, mostly selling, honestly. So I was donating to friends and family, but, um, myself and a few other people were, were selling them through a a local businesses website and this website had a pretty strong reach. So we sold almost 1700. I mean, it was, it was fast and furious. It was really fast. So then on top of that, it was, how do we produce these so quickly? Cause there was this panic of not only do people feel like they need to buy their mask right away, but they need to have it in their hands right away. So then the challenge was enlisting other people that I know who can sew quickly and sew well, because you don't want to send something that they've paid for. You know, you want to send like a piece of crap in the mail. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, how do you, how do you mail things quickly? Our mail system slowed to a halt. So it was logistically on the business side of things, it got really tricky really quickly. Mm -hmm. So from a fit point of view, you know, kind of going back to that, do do you find that you need to offer various sizes of these? Because I imagine it's hard to make these kind of, I mean, I know that pleats and different things can make them a little more adjustable to, you know, take take something that is flat and then make it round around our round faces. Um, But how do you, how do you approach fit for a, a, you know, a population of people that have wildly different face shape sizes, you know, (sighs) contours and things like that? It has been such a challenge. I've learned so much. Um, I have found that the pleated style fits the majority of people's faces. Mm -hmm. So that's, that was kind of the base. And then 
how do you attach the pleated mask to your face? Most people are using elastic ear loops. Mm-hmm. Part of the challenge is that the most comfortable elastic is a really narrow elastic, maybe an eighth of an inch. Mm-hmm. But it was really, really hard to access that material um, because in the beginning, fabric stores were not considered essential businesses. So it was really challenging to get that material. So people were using wider elastic. That was not comfortable. And then um, then after making some masks for some senior members of my family, we realized people with hearing aids can't wear masks that have elastic ear loops. It um, mm. It's not comfortable. It disrupts their hearing. So then we thought, well, we'll do some ties. But <laughs> senior members of my family, family couldn't use, they didn't have the dexterity in their fingers to comfortably tie the masks behind their head. Mm. So these are all, all these challenges. It's like, you think you solve the problem and then another problem pops up and then you solve that, another problem pops up. So a lot of it is just offering a variety of styles, some with elastic that goes around the entire back of the head, maybe another elastic that goes around the nape of the neck. Some people prefer the ties because it um, gives a wider range of fit. Mm-hmm. Some people prefer elastic ear loops um, because it's more or less hands-free. And then what my most recent my, mo- <laughs> my most recent design fix is a variation on the ear loop. But when I ran out of elastic, I started cutting T-shirt material, mm-hmm. which is already stretchy and soft and knit pre-shrunk into one inch strips and you kind of give your strips a tug and they kind of curl onto themselves and they get almost cylindrical like a thin elastic and um making a loop that goes behind the ear it connects at the top I'm making a motion with my hand but you can't see that because this is a podcast mm-hmm. um connects at the top loops behind the ear and then at the bottom it has a little pulley system so you can loosen it for a bigger head you can pull the the strips down the t-shirt strips down and it tightens the mask to make it more snug for people of smaller heads so it's um it's been a journey and it mm-hmm. turns out that even though <laughs> human heads there is not a very large there's not a large variation in sizes for heads mm-hmm. fit and comfort on a face is paramount and People are so easily made uncomfortable by something that's on their face that you really have to be um, careful and thoughtful about design for anything that's going to go on a face. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, it's been like a size issue, but also like you mentioned so many accessibility considerations, you know, with dexterity issues. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of like pictures of people who have made homemade masks or have bought homemade masks that used hair ties elastic Mm -hmm. air ties and then they have these horrible kind of burns at the back of their ears from like just kind of the friction of that um you know kind of creating like a linear blister almost Um, yeah so it seems like once we come up with what we think is an innovation it needs to go through kind of this design thinking cycle to kind of go back to the drawing board and it sounds like you've iterated and made (laughs) different versions of this thing until you get a few varieties of styles that will hopefully fit most people Yeah. And on top of it, everything is happening so fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy to think that from concept to product to 
product variation for into customers' hands with customer feedback, it's only been four weeks. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, it everything seems like is an eternity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, kind of on the, on the thinking about time here. I mean, I think a lot of us maybe this was just like a coping mechanism, but a lot of us when this first happened, or at least started really happening in the United States, a lot of us in the United States said to ourselves, "Okay, we'll shelter in place for four or five weeks, and then some something will happen and things will go back to quote unquote normal." Um, but now that people are talking about that, we'll need to do some kind of social distancing and some kind of mix of you know, um, social distancing and wearing masks. And, you know, I mean, especially with the governor's order here in Illinois, I mean, as of tomorrow, people are required to wear masks in public if they can't socially distance. Um, do you see this as kind of like a long-term business? I mean, you know, um, there are a lot of people donating PPE and that's really important, but there are a lot of people like yourself who have been displaced and are not making money like they normally have. And, while it's great that people like you and I who have sewing machines at home and some skills to do this are making their own masks, there's a lot of people that would just prefer to buy a mask from somebody like you. So is this, do you see this as a long-term business that you'll keep doing for the next couple of years? I do. I definitely do. I mean, I think that masks are here to stay. I think that even after this pandemic has passed, I think that culturally we're going to be much more sensitive to when we're feeling sick, hopefully we'll wear a mask in public to protect ourselves from, you know, spreading the flu or the cold to other people. I mean, I think I'm hoping that we'll see a cultural shift from like, if you are in the grocery store and you see someone wearing a mask thinking, oh my gosh, they're terminally ill. This is terrifying to thinking, oh, they're a little under the weather and they're doing a really courteous thing by wearing a mask in public. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that culturally we have that shift. So then that means yeah, people will be wearing masks and for a long time. And I definitely think the hysteria of everybody needing to get their masks right away has passed. That kind of that tidal wave has crested and now we're in a little bit of a calmer phase. Um, but here's another thing that I'm predicting is that since masks are going to be here to stay, people are going to start to want to have several masks Um for, for one, for the practicality of throwing it in the laundry and just having another one available or keeping one by your back door, one by your front door, one in your backpack. And then also for vanity's sake, I think people will want to have maybe a solid color, maybe a denim one, maybe a, a print. And people are mm-hmm. going to think of it as a new fashion accessory. And in the same way that people don't think twice about having several pairs of earrings that they switch between people are going to have several masks that they switch between. Okay. So you, so do you see, I mean, in addition to like, you know, um, um, individual makers like yourself, do you see big companies, Zara, um, H and M kind of the fast fashion folks, and then, you know, Louis Vuitton, all these people, do you see mm-hmm. them producing masks of infinite like shapes and varieties and formal casual sports? <laughs> I mean, is that kind of the future that you're seeing as a, as a person who's been in fashion for a long time? I do. And I don't know that it's going to be a hot trend forever, but um, I haven't seen it for myself, but I was told that J. Crew made a mask. And uh, I've also been told that Supreme has a mask. So Mm. I think that all the fashion houses are going to start incorporating masks as just an accessory that they carry. So you'll be able to get your like $4 one at H&M and your $300 one from Supreme. Totally. Totally. Yeah. so another thing that you've, you know, you were, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but you have been teaching these after-school classes um, to adults and to kids. And so I know that recently you've kind of, another thing you've had to pivot is kind of 
how you offer that. So, you know, kind of going away from the mask um, subject for a second. Um, sure. So what are you doing to kind of continue to offer these sewing opportunities, these learning opportunities to the kids and adults that you interact with? Sure. Well, taking it like one step back. So when schools closed, some of my classes were still in session. And so um, I had this hope that, you know, we'd take a month off or a couple weeks off, we'd go back to school and I'd be able to finish up these classes. And then at, at some point we realized that schools in Illinois are just going to be closed for the rest of the school year. So one of the problems that I needed to solve was how do I provide curriculum to families that have already paid for their spring trimester mm-hmm. and have already invested in this program. Um, so with that in mind, myself, like many other makers started creating sewing kits for the kids. So um, just thinking about how I would structure my normal curriculum. We would work on one project for maybe two weeks, sometimes three weeks. Um, Classes would meet once a week after school. And so I would, maybe we'd make a stuffed animal, maybe we would make some room decor. So taking that same curriculum, providing the materials, um, making instructions with some nice photographs, some step-by-step instructions, and then bundling them up into a nice kit and delivering them to the families. Mm-hmm. And the response has been really positive. The kids have really enjoyed them. So now it's like, well, if I have the groundwork for this sewing kit program, there's no reason why it should only be for the kids at Oakton Elementary, for example. Why not make more and sell them as as another business venture. So that is something that I'm exploring right now. I'm only a few kits into the program, but it's I've really enjoyed it. So I'm I'm going to continue on that path. So do you imagine these are kind of, um, you know, the, you drop the kits off and the kids complete the kits on their own, or you will start offering some kind of, you know, um, online portal where kids can either get live instruction or pre-recorded instruction or both or all of the above? Well, all of the above. I mean, right now this this business venture is in its infancy. So the program, the kits that I've made so far have all been hand sewing because even though my classes at school are machine sewing, well, they're both, but they're primarily machine sewing. I don't know necessarily that all of my students have sewing machines in their home. So I've been making hand sewing kits, um, but I'm definitely going to expand to making kits that involve sewing machines and then also as you just mentioned um recording some videos doing some online classes i mean really this is a brave new world and i'm just trying to stay open and optimistic to all possibilities um so starting small with hand sewing kits and then just kind of building up up from there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think um I mean, again, I, it's kind of was one of those things where we were all thinking it would be a few weeks. I mean, Governor Pritzker, when he was announcing that the shelter in place order was extending through the end of May, um, he also mentioned in the press conference that he would like teachers to start thinking about remote or continuous distance learning in the fall. So it sounds like he, at least from his the data he can get, is already starting to think about this. That it's not just you know spring 2020 was you know terrible because we all had to do this. He's thinking about this long term, and a lot of people who are studying this are thinking that we could have you know four or five years even before a vaccine, and that we might have these periods of outbreaks where people are sheltering in place and are learning from home. So it sounds like you could have like a long term business of 
this, you know, uh, distance learning sewing um, for these clubs and hobbyists. And I guess, you know, it really mm -hmm. kind of scales to just about anybody since it could be shipped and then use the internet for the instruction. Right. And, you know, nothing beats an in-person class, in my opinion, but I'm trying to come up with something that's the next best option. So I think for myself and for a lot of my students, we are visual learners. So being able to offer a class online that incorporates videos is going to be really helpful and really valuable for these students. Because mm -hmm. um, no matter how many nice photos I print on a piece of paper, nothing beats watching somebody make something with their hands and then trying re to repeat that on your own. Mm -hmm. So I was, I am definitely keeping my fingers crossed that school is going to be back in session in some form or another in the fall, uh, both for my teaching and also for my own childcare. I want my <laughs> kids to go back to school, but you know, I do have to plan for what if, I mean, maybe even if schools go back in the fall, they might not want extracurricular programming to run in the fall. They might want it to just go to class and then head home. So mm -hmm. if there's some type of partial, you know, reintroduction of the school system, I have to, I have to plan for the reality that it could very much not include extracurriculars. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly tough for people like you and I who teach things that are, I mean, I'm not saying that English and math and, um, you know, uh, humanities are not hands-on, but I mean, there's so many times where people like you and I are threading a bobbin, you know, for a student. And we're so close to that, um, to that student, you know, definitely mm -hmm. well within the social distancing, um, you know, um, radius, but I mean, there's just so many hands-on things where we're sharing tools where, I mean, it's, you know, it's to the point where like, I wouldn't even feel comfortable handing a student a piece of fabric if we were both wearing masks for fear of infecting them, even though we don't know exactly how long this lives on textiles, but it definitely sounds like, I mean, you know, maybe in the fall you could be kids could be on machines around you, but you would be at some distance, you know, kind of demoing this on like, you know, um, a camera that's being projected, you know, behind you or something like that. I mean, it definitely seems like there's going to have to be a hybrid kind of compromise of how we do these things. And, um, definitely to your point about, I mean, you know, I teach things that are not part of core curriculum. You teach things that are not part of core curriculum. Will schools really want to focus on those when they have to provide the, the core of every child's school day? Right. And even just thinking about like, what you suggested with sewing with some type of camera and projecting. Um, even that is like such a luxury for schools to be able to have that kind of technology that um, a lot of the spaces I'm going into are just, are so bare bones where it's, I'm, I'm bringing my machines, I'm bringing a tub of scissors mm -hmm. and that's what we use. And, you know, as much as I can sanitize my equipment, I, I don't know if I'm able to sanitize everything as much as it needs to be sanitized. I can do my best, but I don't, I don't know what the threshold is for what we're going to need to do to keep people clean and safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a moving target. I mean, I think that, um, some of the obvious things like washing your hands for 20 seconds, because you know, of what the soap does to the virus, I think those are going to be with us for a while, but I definitely can see what you're saying. I mean, there's so many things that are changing, um, one other thing kind of just to add another, uh, facet to this conversation is sure. that you recently went back to school to with <sighs> the eventual goal of studying nursing. So that's right. you kind of pulled the trigger on that before this all <laughs> happened, but how, how do you feel? I mean, has it just reinvigorated you? Has it just refocused you 
to say even more so that you want to study nursing? Has it been like um, where you're kind of scared to study nursing and we're thinking of a different direction or, or something in the middle? It's been, I've, I've had the full range of emotions over this decision. So I've, I've been thinking about going back to nursing or I should say going back to school, starting nursing for the first time for several years now. And then last summer I just said, all right, let's go time. Not getting any younger. Let's do it. So this past school year, I've been retaking my sciences and then with the intention of taking the HESI, which is the entrance exam and applying to nursing programs kind of halfway through next school year. So this pandemic has done a couple of things. It has made it so that I can't take all of my classes because so many nursing classes, you have to physically be close to other people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of classes are actually not being offered. So classes that I was planning on taking this summer and next fall are just not available. So it has definitely pushed back my start date. Um, so, and it's been interesting because on one hand, it's, it feels very much a call to action. Like this is a way that I can help people. And that mm -hmm. feels very important to me right now. But then on the other hand, as we've been sheltering in place and I've been trying to be a homeschool teacher for a third grader and a fifth grader while making masks, it has also shifted my kind of refocus my priorities of that is, you know, if I can keep a roof over my head by sewing, should my priority be focusing on my own kids right now mm -hmm. is being a homeschool teacher and a sewing kit maker and mask sewer. Is that enough? Like, is, is that enough to satisfy kind of my urge to both help my family and kind of help the community at large? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I'm, I've been grappling with that, but I, th I think the fact that a lot of my classes have been put on hold and that's been outside of my control is kind of giving me a moment to take pause and just kind of focus on sewing, focus on the kids and then get reinvigorated to study biochemistry <laughs> next school year, mm -hmm. anatomy and physiology. But it's, uh, it's, it's been great kind of having both the, the nursing school part of my brain and the sewing and pattern making part of my brain just fully activated at the same time in problem solving mode. The intersection, I mean, it wasn't really your choice as much. I mean, <laughs> obviously you saw opportunities and stepped up to the plate to, to do something about that. But it is interesting that you have this deep skill set as a pattern maker and a designer and, you know, a, an upholsterer and a fashion designer. And then this interest in, you know, health and public health and, you get a real chance to uh, prototype both of those in a real yeah. world emergency. Um, so kind of turning to a personal side of things, I mean, how, what, what is working for you? I mean, you're um, like a lot of parents, all of a sudden you're the teacher, the um, principal for issues <laughs> that come up, the, you know, the stay at home mom, all of these things at the same time, what's working for you as far as coping with this? I mean, I think we're in, I think this is the seventh week um, that tells you how long it's been going on that I'm not totally yeah. sure how many weeks we've been sheltering in place in Illinois, but what, what works for you as far as coping, self-care, things like that? Well, I, first, first of all, I have to give a shout out to my kids. They've been so resilient and, you know, we've all had our ups and downs and our meltdowns and crying sessions, but 
for the most part, they have been so resilient and so accommodating to all these changes. Um, and I'm really grateful that they're a little bit older so I can kind of get them started on their schoolwork and then step away and be at the sewing machine for a couple hours. And if my kids were younger, if they were preschool age, I definitely would not have that luxury. And I think I would be in a very different headspace. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, this kind of sounds like a joke, but the truth is my greatest coping mechanism has been lowering my standards. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you know, realizing that we're all doing the best we can and we're going to do as much schoolwork as we're able to. And as long as my kids keep reading and we do a little math every day, do a little reading every day, and some of their screen time is not total garbage, mm-hmm. um, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Yeah, and I really I, think. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I mean, I think in the beginning, I was just really trying to tackle every homework assignment check in with the teachers on all these, you know, scheduled times. And it was, it was impossible. And I think once I just realized we'll do the best we can and we'll survive and it'll be okay. It just really took the pressure off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like everything is made more difficult by this. And I think that what a lot of things I've read from mental health experts is that we are all experiencing some degree of trauma from this, whether we acknowledge it or not. And, you know, um, while it is noble to set a schedule of working out and reinventing yourself and starting a business and baking bread, um, you know, all while balancing being a stay at home mom, et cetera. It really, I think your, your approach there to kind of just relax and kind of do your best. I think that's all any of us can do. Yeah. Thank you. And then I, I've, I have worried or had parental guilt a lot of times where I've thought, you know, I'm spending all these hours at the sewing machine. I'm not engaging with my kids. I'm ignoring them. I'm telling them to forcing them to be independent so I can get my work done. I'm just having waves of feeling really terrible about that. And what I've realized is that the kids have really thrived with more independence. Um, that's been wonderful to see and they're leaning on each other more. And they're also watching me in real time work really hard at a project that I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really good for them to see because a lot of kids don't have necessarily the opportunity to see their parents work during the day and get excited about things and really invest their headspace and their emotional space into a project that they think is hopefully doing good for other people. So, I mean, as much as I feel terrible about, you know, being so focused on sewing and not playing Monopoly all day long with the kids, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's good for kids to see their parents work hard. Oh yeah. Right? I think I think rather than like the old model of uh, let's hide the adversity from our children. I think where it's age appropriate, um, you know, that they see us struggle with something and work our way through it. I think that's how the model of how they'll do that down the road. Right. Yeah. Uh, Growth mindset. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We keep hearing about it. So now it's time to practice it. Um, So if you're willing, I'm really curious. I'm really fascinated by the kind of the frivolous, um, kind of junk food kind of things people are watching or doing. Is there anything like you're watching on Netflix? I mean, I'll share that I have been enjoying revisiting 1980 movies, 1980s movies uh, from my childhood, which have 
implausibly happy endings or everything wraps up neatly in two hours. Um, what, what, is there anything you're, you want to share with folks a recommendation for something to kind of check out and, and watch or read or listen to? Sure. So I, um, have enjoyed watching next in fashion, Mm -hmm. uh, hosted by Tian France, who Mm -hmm. is a new favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. And then, um, of course, oh, now I'm blanking on it. What's the name of that show? <laughs> it's like, ew, David is a catchphrase. Hmm. Yeah, I don't oh, know that one. It'll come to me after Next we stop recording. Is, Next in Fashion is popular in this house for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to see that as kind of like uh, the child of Project Runway in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it seems I like to see the people kind of any, anything where people have to make things under time constraint and do it on television is really, whether it's a baking show or a Top Chef or something like that is, is awesome. And a little side story, if we have time. Of course. Um, my my senior year at Columbia College Chicago, a representative came to our tailoring class and said, "We're gonna we're gonna start filming a reality show. We can't tell you where it's gonna be filmed, what city it's gonna be in. We can't tell you who the host is, but we can tell you there's one of the hosts is gonna be a celebrity. It's gonna be fashion related. So if you want to audition for this show that we can't give you any information about." come to this hotel in Chicago, bring your portfolio, expect to kind of sit around in the lobby for eight hours. And I thought, that sounds terrible. (laughs) So I I was like, that's a terrible sales pitch. Um, So I didn't go to this audition. And then it turns out it was the audition for the first season of Project Runway. And I blew it. I blew it. And I have no idea if I would have even made it onto the show. I certainly would not have won the show, but I've definitely kicked myself that I missed the opportunity of even just having the experience of auditioning for Project Runway. Oh, yeah. Wow, that is so wild. Yeah, well, maybe next in fashion. You can, maybe that's (laughs) That's your second chance. Yeah. My second chance. (laughs) Well, Courtney, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me, Um, especially with you homeschooling slash making a mass slash studying nursing slash starting a new business. Um, I just want to say I really appreciate it. And it was fascinating to learn all about you and all about what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This is a nice, nice change of pace. Thank you for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. I'd like to express my gratitude to those out there creating PPE and for those who have sat down and talked to us. If you have show ideas, please reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com. 